Primary Care Knowledge Boost, Podcast 10, Hematology, B12 and Foliate. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. I'm Dr. Lisa Adams. And I'm Dr. Sarah McDermott. Today we are going to be talking to um, consultant haematologist Dr. Gregory again about B12 and foliate deficiency and get his thoughts about how to approach it, how to treat it and macrocytosis. In the last episode prior to this one we talked more generally to him about anemia and we'd recommend listening to this episode before starting this one. So welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Um, we're here for our second in our series of haematology episodes. Um, so today we're going to be talking to Dr. Gregory again about B12 and foliate deficiencies. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners again, Dr. Gregory? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's Dr. Chris Gregory, um, haematology consultant here at uh, WWL Trust. So this is a topic we were really looking forward to. Um, and you mentioned, I think you get a lot of referrals about B12 and folates. We do get quite a bit of inquiries, information, uh, requests for information and things regarding this topic. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, what sort of things are you getting? What kind of referrals are coming through? Sure. Well, certainly one of the slightly more common ones is when someone notices a high B12 level. Um, yeah, it's 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 associated with quite a, f- a few different things. But if you type it into Google, as I'm sure many people do when they see these results in clinic, it often comes up with a paper which was published quite a few years ago, and it lists all these horrendous things like leukemia as <laughs> as being causes of raised B12 levels, and and therefore um, I think it often prompts GPs to go, oh my goodness, this is this is something very serious, and quick refer on. Yeah. Um, obviously, high B12 levels can be associated with these sorts of problems, right. but it's in the context. Of, of all the other blood tests that you've done as well and so if someone's got a high b12 level for example and then they've got a completely normal full blood count yeah. it, it, they don't have acute myeloid leukemia or anything like that so yeah. you know it's it's just that sort of level of looking at the picture as a whole can sometimes give you a guide as to, yeah. to what's kind of going on mm. um obviously sometimes people aren't sure of the significance or when to treat low b12s and low folates and things like yeah. that as well and so we sometimes do get these sorts of referrals yeah. so interestingly what are what would be the cause of a high b12 with a normal blood count so sometimes we don't always uh, get to the bottom of it. It, it is an inflammatory uh, protein in a, in a similar way to sort of the ferritin, so it can be affected if there's other chronic inflammatory problems. Liver disease, people can have sometimes high B12s because of that. Yeah. Um, and obviously sometimes people may be just ingesting B12 and you don't know about it necessarily. Yeah. But, but yeah, sometimes we, we do sort of various screening tests. We look for a whole bunch of potential causes and we don't actually find any particular reason but um it's not causing them any harm to have a slightly higher than what we consider to be normal b12 level yeah yeah and um, starting on b12 there's sure. new things about it um we understand there's some issues about the reliability of the b12 testing and um, can you tell us more about that sure yeah I, again as with any lab test sometimes it's about sort of looking at it in the context of the patient as a whole yeah um generally speaking a low b12 level does usually indicate underlying b12 deficiency mm-hmm. um so i've seen several patients where they've had multiple tests and it's all been low and people have seeming to keep on repeating the low blood test just in case it, it bounces up yeah so as a, as a general rule of thumb i'd say look if it's low it probably is an accurate result uh-huh. or there is some sort of tendency for deficiency yeah. if it's sort of normal or high that doesn't necessarily exclude a deficiency and i suppose that's probably the thing that you're looking for if they've got 
uh, an anemia, particularly a macrocytic anemia is the more commonly associated one, and normal B12 level yep. don't necessarily assume that the B12 level isn't low because sometimes it, it can be a deficiency despite that. Okay. Particularly sometimes in the context of folate deficiency. So if you've got a low folate, then sometimes your, your B12 levels can actually be artificially elevated. So right. it can sort of kind of mimic things a little bit like that. Okay. Um, so yeah. Interesting. So I guess if we start by talking about everything in the context of an anemia, um, just so that makes it easier, and we'll move on and talk about um, the non-anemia situations afterwards. Sure. So uh, with an anemia, what would be the main causes of a B12 or folate deficiency? So um, probably the commonest, certainly worldwide, is just um, kind of malabsorption, malnutrition. So um, either people aren't able to absorb the B12 because of pernicious anemia, they've got some sort of problem with their stomach, mm -hmm. or because they're just on a diet or some sort of food restriction that means they're just not getting enough B12 in there. Yeah. Um, B12 is contained in dairy products, meats. Um, it's also fortified in quite a lot of other products that people tend to buy, bread and um, flowers, breakfast cereals, things like that. Yeah. So, so you do have to have quite a restrictive diet to completely avoid B12. And in our country, just with most people shopping baskets of the foods that they put in, yeah. but particularly people like vegans are more at risk than, than your average person of getting it. Just They may have a, a normal stomach, they may have no malabsorption, but but just because of, of the particular restrictions that they're getting. So so that group of patients should be kind of you know warned about this. I think many are, and, and often they'll have some sort of supplement. Yeah. Um, obviously, the malabsorption side of things is where you may start to think about problems like celiac disease or, or other issues, and and obviously pernicious anemia. Yeah. Potentially looking for the uh, autoantibody tests, the intrinsic factor. Yeah. Do we have to request those autoantibody tests for intrinsic factor, or um, do they get done naturally? So as far as I'm aware, they don't automatically get no, processed. Yeah. They are something that if you've got a low B12 level, then it, the emphasis is on the GPs kind of yeah. checking for it. Um, there are haematology guidelines, which, which we get published by the British Society of Haematology, and, and they've published something on B12 and folate deficiency. And, and they do generally recommend testing for intrinsic factor antibodies, mm -hmm. but not for gastric parietal cell antibodies. Okay. That's more age-associated. And if you've got someone who's elderly who's got a low B12, and generally speaking, it's just long-term supplements. Yeah. Um, personally, looking through these guidelines, I'm not, I'm not overly convinced in the value of checking intrinsic factor. Yeah. Um, mainly just because B12 is generally well tolerated. It doesn't cause too many side effects. Yeah. And it's pretty cheap. So if someone has a low B12 level, then just carrying on B12 replacement in whatever form it is mm -hmm. probably isn't going to do them any sort of long-term problems, mm -hmm. but at least give you as a doctor peace of mind that they're not suddenly going to come B12 deficient in the future. Yeah. yeah. The potential problem, I suppose, could be is if they don't, if they've got normal intrinsic factors that you think, oh, well, I'll just give, you know, three months worth of replacement therapy and then stop. And then two years later, their B12 deficiency has just recurred yeah. and they may potentially then have symptoms. But because I suppose you had that false level of reassurance that, oh, they've not obviously got a malabsorption problem, they're not at risk of it occurring again. Yeah. Whereas they still might be, even if they don't have an antibody. Gotcha. Can you tell us a bit more about intrinsic factor? Yeah, so, 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 so if it's positive, yeah. then you're definitely going to want to do long-term B12 replacement yeah. because they are just at risk of it. If it's normal, then I suppose you, you may have the, the temptation to stop the, the B12 rejection, replacement therapy, particularly yeah. if that's what the patient wants. Yeah. Um, but I'd certainly want to keep a close eye on these patients and not just assume that because the intrinsic factor was normal doesn't mean the B12 levels couldn't drop down again. Yeah. 
there, there are some patients, particularly pregnant women, who may develop a B12 deficiency where there's an obvious sort of cause for it, which is a transient one. And so hopefully, you know, their B12 levels will replenish again after the baby's been born and things, if they're assuming they have a kind of a normal diet again. But even during pregnancy, they may still benefit from B12 replacement right. yeah. to stop them from becoming anemic or developing other problems during that. Gotcha. Good. So generally, how um, how do we approach anemia due, due to B12 or folate deficiency? Yeah. So um, again, um, history and examination are kind of the commonest sorts of things just to make sure that the people um, don't have an obvious sort of cause for it, whether that's, um, you know, a dietary reason for it, which is either, you know, a, a particular one that they choose or just because they weren't aware of what B12 was contained in foods. And it may be a case that you just tell them to buy slightly different bread, which is more enriched with it or different yeah. breakfast cereal. And, and that may be enough. Yeah. Obviously, um, anyone who's got any sort of GI symptoms, um, whether that's sort of reflux, indigestion, change in bowel habit, those sorts of things may probably or probably should prompt you to think, you know, do I need to do an OGD on this patient? Do I need to refer them on to a gastroenterologist for, for yeah. consideration that there may be something which is causing this that may be treatable or reversible? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're kind of common ones. Brilliant. Have you seen many symptoms of B12 or folate deficiency anemia? So... B12 deficiency is is obviously um, probably most commonly associated with causing neuropathy and, and nerve damage. Yeah. Um, so people can just have the, the standard symptoms of, of anemia with kind of breathlessness and, and reduced exercise ability. Yeah. Um, but the B12 is, is the one which is more likely to give you problems with the nerves. Yeah. Uh, and this is particularly affecting nerves related to proprioception, sort of balanced joint position sense and things like that. Yeah. So if you are doing kind of like a mini neuro exam in someone then then checking those sorts of things particularly mm-hmm. in the peripheries so be knowing whether um the finger is or toe is is up or down yeah. um i think many people will often also get just a general numbness general peripheral neuropathy as well developing so an abnormal sensation yeah um so that's something that also can be a potential cause particularly if someone presents saying you know i've got numb feet or tingling in my fingers then you know checking b12 and folate levels these things can also occur despite not being anemic. So yeah. people can still have normal hemoglobin levels, but still have neuropathy due to low B12 levels. Right. Um, and the neuropathy, does that tend to be um, mostly related to B12 rather than foliates? Yes. So so folate deficiency is less commonly associated. But again, we tend to just check both at the same time. So even if you just request the B12, our lab will give you a folate as well in the vast, vast majority of cases. Oh, wow. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just to be on the safe side, I think uh, a long time ago it may have been individual separate tests, and they are processed separately. So it's not like you just run them through the one analyzer. But um, because of the importance of checking one and the other, and obviously particularly having um, a low folate without knowing about B12, because if you start replacement for folate, then that can drive the B12 even lower. Yeah, um, and that can then worsen things like neuropathy. And, um, and so it's um, balance, proprioception um, most commonly, and then um, they can also have the peripheral neuropathies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're the more kind of common ones. Brilliant. Just thinking about urgent referrals, um, who do you think might need an urgent referral around this subject? Sure. So no one needs an urgent referral to haematology. Um, so, <laughs> so generally speaking, um, if people have really low B12 levels, uh, whether that's driving anemia or neuropathy and things, it's much more likely that that should go to the gastro team because it tends to be a malabsorption problem yeah. if they don't obviously have a dietary one so someone may well need kind of a scope and things to, to look i've seen people have been diagnosed with crohn's disease or other inflammatory bowel diseases based yeah. on these sorts of problems mm-hmm. 
Um, if someone does have quite severe neuropathy, again, um, the emphasis should just be on to start the B12 replacement and folate replacement as soon as possible. Okay. Um, so you don't wait for a referral, don't wait to be seen by a neurologist or, a, or anyone else, just get on with the replacement. Yeah. Um, and that is probably the best way to try and correct the neuropathy, but at the very least try to worsen any deterioration in it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, because yeah, I think the NICE guidelines and um, on the NICE CKS, they talk about um, if you've got the, neuro- the neurological involvement, is it that you're supposed to refer urgently to haematology? Yeah. Uh, so, so, so those ones, uh, again, were, were probably published without much input by a haematologist. I, I can understand why, um, and people do just kind of get worried about these things. But, but unfortunately, as a haematologist, there's not actually much extra that I can do other than what you as GPs can do in terms of starting replacement of things. Yeah. Um, obviously, if there are sort of other things going on and you're not quite sure is this just a straightforward b12 deficiency are there other problems going on with the full blood count it may still be appropriate to refer to hematology yeah um i have seen some patients again who've had leukemia and they've sort of presented with a mild pancytopenia and their b12 or folate has been on the low side of things so we've considered giving replacement therapy first and that hasn't shifted the blood counts even though the values have gone up so sometimes it can indicate other problems going on Um, but if it's just sort of a low b12 level and they're not significantly anemic or there's no other cytopenias then again referring to ourselves probably isn't going to really change their outcomes and things brilliant so get things started and consider referral if needed and 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 obviously you know that may bring us on to the next question about how long to replace for and what to give and things like that yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. (laughs) um we were going to ask but i think we've already covered this about other investigations because you've all you've mentioned about all the gastro yeah so i don't think there's much more to add into that no so so people used to do shilling tests um and that was one where people had a special kind of radioisotope to to look for absorption across the stomach of the b12 levels Mm -hmm. but the dye has been out for many years now probably even a decade and stuff so occasionally we get some old school gps who refer on but i think probably the word is spread mostly now that that people know that shilling test is not something that that we really need to do and uh, you know ogd is probably the best thing to look for proper absorption problems and the shilling test Mm -hmm actually doesn't give you that much more information um so yes you were right so we were going to ask next about who um who should be getting oral versus im to start with yeah sure so um there is some evidence to say that the oral can be used but the the problem particularly with people who've got a malabsorption issue such as kind of pernicious anemia intrinsic factor antibody positive mm-hmm. is that you need very high doses to overcome the malabsorption problem right. so the doses are probably along the lines of 1000 to 2000 micrograms now mm-hmm. the tablets that are prescribable on the bnf are 50 micrograms <laughs> so in theory you need to take very large doses of these tablets to try and kind of get that same sort of supplementation value to overcome the the, the malabsorption problem right. yeah the vast majority of people intramuscularly you know they're getting it you know it's going into the system and you know you're not worried about gi absorption or them forgetting to take tablets and compliance and things yeah um particularly i think um if they do have signs of neuropathy or or they are significantly anemic then i wouldn't rely on tablets and i'd certainly actively discourage them from from doing that i would probably say look at the very least try to get established on terms of some sort of treatment before whether they wanted to switch to, to oral um, but most people that I find actually tolerate intramuscular injections fine. It's not a problem. And yeah. many patients actually find that 
it gives them a boost. Yeah. For, for some reason, I, I don't know what they put in these B12 injections, but but people often come back complaining saying, you know, it's three months since my next injection, but I feel I really, really need it. Can yeah. I have it every two months or so? Um, so? So I sometimes do say, well, look, you know, it's not because you're deficient. It's not because your levels have suddenly dropped back down again to, to really low levels. They're still perfectly normal levels, yeah. but if they want it every two months, fine. I wouldn't give it any more frequently than two monthly, even if the patients are really feeling that they need it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's probably something that they add into the, the injection itself rather than the B12. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so um, whenever we're starting it, should everybody be getting the three doses a week for the first two weeks? Yeah, so, so that's generally the recommended sort of replacement therapy. And that's what I tend to write in most people's letters. Mm. But if people do have sort of neuropathy, then you can carry that on until the symptoms of neuropathy have either completely resolved or that they are no longer improving. Right. So so there is evidence to say, look, continual sort of alternate day or sort of three times a week B12 injections may help sort of correct some of that neuropathy mm. even more than just then going on to the three months at that point. So yeah. for the vast majority of people who are, don't have symptoms, mm. just three uh, the, the six injections um, and then three monthly. But for some people, it may be worth just giving more. Mm. But with, I'm guessing, quite close supervision to make sure that that is actually making a difference. Co- correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so as soon as it feels that the symptoms have, have either completely resolved or at least sort of no longer improving, then that would be a time to then just go on to maintenance. Okay. Um, and we kind of have touched on the um, who should be on long term versus short term B12 um, already. Yeah. Um, so really, most people maybe longer term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so certainly unless there is a sort of reversible thing like pregnancy which which has obviously been for a time and there's an, a reason why they've had a nutritional defect just the diet may not have been enough to compensate what the baby was taking from their own system mm-hmm. um so in those circumstances yeah maybe just short term course and then check things again six months later to make sure the levels haven't dropped yeah. but for a lot of patients it's probably going to be either just because their diet's not going to change despite what you recommend or because they've just got a chronic malabsorption and in those circumstances three month b12 replacement it gives you a degree of peace peace of mind to know that they're getting it and um and and that it's not going to suddenly reoccur in the future if you stop treatment yeah definitely. yeah um thinking about folate replacement now um sure what do you normally advise in terms of, of starting and, and continuing folate yeah so so again folate is is something that may just be due to poor diet folate is often in the green leafy vegetables and if you cook your food for too long then the folate level or the folate is kind of destroyed so um, Mm. boiling your vegetables to the point where they're kind of sort of a bit soggy and no longer crunchy probably means your folate levels aren't all that great (laughs) even if you eat lots of greens Um, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. so 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 sometimes just a slight change in the way people cook and things as well as a short-term tablet supplement may be enough to kind of get people over through it yeah um, there are some people who who need continual doses of folate, particularly people who've got um, hematological problems where their red cells are being destroyed prematurely, so hemolytic anemias and yeah. um, other problems like that. Many of our mm. more significant sickle cell or thalassemia patients will be on folate supplement just because their red cell turnover is higher and folate's used up much more quicker yeah. um, than, than B12 levels are. Um, again, for, for some patients... Um, it may just be sort of a particular dietary problem or a malabsorption problem that that may have treatment. So I've had patients who've had Crohn's disease again, who've come to me for anemia and we found folate deficiency and then diagnosed Crohn's following on from that. Mm -hmm. Their Crohn's was then treated and their folate levels have now risen back up to normal. So we've stopped these sort of supplements and things from that side of things. So again, it it very much depends on whether the underlying cause for it is something that is likely to to change and resolve or or whether it's something that's just going to persist despite other 
the treatment. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I guess, with the mention there, um, you briefly t- talked about hemolytic anemias there, which isn't something that we've really covered in our hematological series. Sure. Um, but I'm guessing that with that one, we would be finding quite obvious reasons for what it is. Like you said, bilirubin might go up, and so there'd be a reason for us to refer on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the kind of common commonest signs of, of hemolytic anemias is uh, a drop in hemoglobin with a rise in mcv yeah. and then the reticulocytes the very premature red blood cells would usually go up as well mm-hmm. now reticulocytes at least in wigan aren't usually reported as part of the full blood count yeah. but they are always done by the analyzers as well so the analyzer okay. will have that so if there is a concern then sometimes you can just phone back up and they may have that as a kind of like a an unreported oh. result there okay. um, but that can be requested and then yeah as you mentioned the lft is looking at bilirubin because again that goes up in breakdown of red blood cells yeah um and I suppose the, the gold standard for, for looking at hemolytic anemia is a direct Coombs test. Again, that's yeah. not necessarily something I'd expect GPs to be ordering, but is one to look for. Um, haptoglobin is something that you may see in some textbooks and things, and in certain hospitals they do, but it's not something that, that is, is available in the Wigan and Salford labs. Mm-hmm. Um, they just decided that it wasn't all that useful as a blood test. Okay. Um, and the final one, LDH, again, yeah. is non-specific, mm-hmm. but again can sometimes go up in, in hemolytic anemia. So so if you're suspecting hemolysis, then then they will be the ones to do in amongst the B12 folate deficiency. Brilliant, thank you. Okay. Um, so if you've got a patient who's got a combined um, deficiency in B12 and folate, yeah. um, can you just talk us through how you'd start replacement for that? For that? Sure. So, so generally speaking, the B12 is the more significant one in terms of likely to cause symptoms like neuropathy if it's still low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned, uh, if the folate, if you replace that first without giving B12, then the B12 can drop further and cause more problems. So yeah. as a general rule of thumb, if um, you've got a combined deficiency, then start B12 replacement first. Yeah. It doesn't need to be kind of all that much before, so you don't necessarily need to complete the whole six injections of, of their boosting course, yeah. um, but uh, making sure that they've had at least one of the injections so they've got some B12 in their system to use yeah. and then start the oral s- supplement for the folate. Okay. Um, and that's usually the way around. Um, obviously, if it's just folate that's low and you're not concerned about the B12, it's in a good normal level, yeah. then um, you can just start the folic acid. Gotcha. Is there ever a case, um, so say we haven't got an anemia with it um, and we've got just a very slightly lower B12 than normal, not very low, but just a little bit below normal, yeah. for starting folate replacement and repeating the B12? Um Again, I, I would probably just err on the side of caution and just yeah. and just start the B12 replacement rather than necessarily repeating blood tests. I mean, yeah. I have seen that, that being done, but um, I, like I said at the very, very beginning, I wouldn't be too concerned about a low value being falsely low, yeah. generally speaking. A high value may be falsely high, but yeah, but yeah if, if it's low, um, I would just tend to err on the side of caution and replace it. Yeah, grand. Yeah. What are the other causes of macrocytosis? Yeah, so so obviously B12 and folate is probably the one that we're most familiar with. Um, hemolytic anemias, again, is obviously something that, that we briefly mentioned, mentioned. And again, autoimmune hemolytic anemia is probably one of the, the most well-known types of hemolysis. Yeah. But people can get other types of hemolysis due to other problems. So people with bad heart valves, particularly if there's been perhaps some sort of heart valve repair yeah. and, and the valve is, is is not working properly still and it's shearing the red blood cells in half and that can cause yeah. a similar sort of picture. There, there are other types of hemolysis where people can be, or usually very, very poorly, such as the the, the mahas or the microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, such as TTP mm. or um, 
hemolyticular remix syndrome yeah. those patients are unlikely to just present primarily to primary care yeah i suppose they might do it with flu-like symptoms or other things but you're going to be checking their blood counts and finding that they've usually got renal impairment or very significant deranged lfts or or very severe blood counts with very low platelets and things so yeah. so those sorts of patients tend to sort of self-select themselves to a and e or the yeah. acute medicine unit quite quickly liver disease is, itself can cause a, a macrocytosis so um, as a general rule it's not a bad idea to, to either look at the lfts or, or organize an ultrasound scan yeah. again even in the non-drinkers non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or nash is, is is certainly common in in areas where you know people are overweight and things and don't always have the greatest of diets so yeah. so being aware of that side of things may help Asking about alcohol consumption, again, yeah. alcohol itself can have a direct effect on the MCV yeah. of the red blood cells, even in the absence of anemia or underlying liver disease. So people going out and binge drinking every now and again. Um, so that may be something just to advise them. Yeah. Um, there's certain medication which can cause macrocytosis, um, particularly when I prescribe hydroxycarbamide. Mm. Um, that, that typically just makes the MCV go up to around 114, 118 or something. Yeah. Um, it can sort of make some GPs quite alarmed when they don't realise it and they go, oh, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, but, but that's just a direct effect of the medication. And, and there's, I'm sure there's a few others, particularly immunosuppressive medications, which could cause it. Yeah. Um, one of the, the other ones, which obviously is something which um, would warrant a haematology referral is is myelodysplastic syndrome. So mm-hmm. where um, people are anemic due to a bone marrow problem where the, the blood cells aren't being sort of properly matured in the bone marrow and coming out sort of abnormal looking yeah. and therefore they don't last as long in the circulation. So that can drive the anemia. Mm-hmm. Um, you may sometimes also see low neutrophil counts, low platelet counts, abnormalities with that. But sometimes MDS can just be an anemia. So so again, if you've looked through other things, you've checked B12 folate, you've not found any other obvious cause, that may still be a reason to refer. Okay. Um, yeah. Lovely. Um, what about the significance of a normal hemoglobin with a high MCV um, when you've excluded things like alcohol? So um, yeah, sometimes if people have normal hemoglobins but, but raised MCVs, um, and we've done a whole bunch of investigations and ruled out any sort of sinister pathology. We, we don't always kind of come to it in medicine. Unfortunately, it's just one of those things sometimes. Yeah. Uh, again, if there's nothing kind of particularly concerning in terms of a rising trend or anything, mm-hmm. you know, we may just discharge the patient and say, well, look, you know, their MCV is just perhaps a bit more higher than, than average. And sometimes we do get that with people. Obviously, if their MCV is continuing to rise, mm. even though there's not necessarily any obvious disease pathology yet. We may just kind of keep them in, under our clinic review and just monitor things just to see, look, are they developing anemia or something else like that, which is which is going on. And the rising MCV was just the first sign of something else developing. But yeah. but yeah, certainly we've had patients who we've done a whole bunch of tests and we've not found an obvious cause. They're well, there's no other abnormalities with their bloods. And so we just have to say, well, you know, it's just you and discharge them. Yeah, I think that's us finished um, for this topic. Although if we can talk to you again a little bit about immunoglobulins, that'd be really good. Sure, no um, problems. Yeah, thanks very much. For Pleasure. To us today. Thank, Thank you. you. So that was a really interesting discussion with Dr. Gregory, wasn't it? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I was surprised how much I learned from it, actually. Yeah, even just the beginning about... Um, 
finding out about diagnosing B12 deficiency. Mm -hmm. It was really useful to hear that you can usually trust a low B12 uh, as a significant result. Yeah. Um, And then being more cautious about definitely trusting a kind of normal or a higher B12 result. Yeah. And actually, if they've got symptoms, then, you know, not necessarily trusting those results. Yeah, don't rule it out. Yeah. Um, I think that was good, actually. You're right, Sarah. Yeah. Um, I think I enjoyed um, discussing um, what else can cause macrocytosis. Mm. Um, So not just thinking that it'll be a B12 or folate, that there are other things out there. Yeah. Um, Especially things like your hemolytic anemias that we don't come across very often. No, yeah. That Um, was good. It was good. Yeah. So uh, you can expect to hear the next episode um, in three weeks time where we'll be talking to Dr. Gregory again about immunoglobulins, which is surprisingly interesting and we learned a lot from. Yes, definitely. Um, And as we tell you every time we have our survey, we're still trying to get feedback um, about this and how we can improve it and show some evidence that we're doing well. Yeah. Um, So we've got a link in the episode description. um, And if you can fill that in, that would be great. Um, You can also contact us and we've got an email address, which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter and our handle is at PCKB podcast. Till next time on Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Wigan in 2019. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for more information and for any links that we've mentioned in the episode.